The satirical site, The Onion, ran a humorous fictional, note fictional article with a biting truth. The article was titled, World Death Rate Holding Steady at 100%. The article reported, World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professions worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, the condition has no cure. I was really hoping with all the new radiology treatments and rescue helicopters and aerobic TV shows that you have that we might at least be able to put a dent in it this year, the World Health Organization director said. But unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant and total as it has since the dawn of time. Of course, Benjamin Franklin, right, is famous in a letter he wrote in, in 1789, a year after the Constitution had been ratified. He wrote, Our new Constitution is now established and has the appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Have you ever thought why? Ever thought, why is there death? Is it just a natural process and then there's more to it than that? Of course, in one sense, death does have a 100% success rate. But in another sense, right, death has lost its sting. Right? Death has been swallowed up in victory. See, death came by one man. And thus, death came to us all. But death was conquered by one man. And thus, life came to us all. That's what our passage in Romans is all about today, in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. So please turn in your scriptures there to Romans 5. And follow along as we read God's word. The scripture says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Heavenly Father, it's our privilege now to gather our thoughts around your word, around these verses, around this truth. So teach us now, Holy Spirit, illumine within us the truth of your word, so that not only would we know it, but it would change us and challenge us and comfort us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today is powerful and deep. And these 10 verses are important and compelling truth. Much is written on them. But the vast and and profound as these verses are, the essential truth is rather simple to understand. Sin and death is fighting for primacy in our life. But they are simply and completely overcome by Jesus. Jesus is so much more. Grace abounds all the more. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you and me. Verse 19 is a great summary of the whole passage. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, but by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. One commentator summarized the passage saying, the atoning death of Christ has reversed Adam's introduction of sin and death into the world. This reversal does not merely correct Adam's misstep and its consequences, but overwhelms them with the lavish grace of God. God has decisively defeated the power of sin and death and brought the era of their reign to an end. And now the era of the eternal reign of God's grace has begun. Verse 21, sin reigned in death, but grace abundantly reigns in eternal life. Paul, having just talked about the great benefits that come from those who have been justified by faith, those who have peace with God, those who have been reconciled to God, now goes back a step before he goes forward again in chapter 6. He wants to give us the big picture. He wants to give us the background tooth. He wants to give us the foundational teaching behind the reconciliation that we have now received. He wants to highlight the amazing superlative grace and power of Christ through whom we have received reconciliation. And he does so by comparing and contrasting, by type and anti-type, by showing the great differences between the one who brought sin into the world the one who took care of sin, by contrasting the power of sin and death with the overwhelming power of grace and life and Christ, by exposing the darkness, he is shining an ever brighter spotlight on the truth, by going deep into the depth of death, he takes us so much higher to the abundance of grace, 
and to the reign of eternal life. Look there at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 12 tells us three things, each progressing from the former. First, sin came into the world through one man. Now, Adam's not mentioned in verse 12, but it's obvious by the context where he is named in verse 14 that the one man through whom sin came into the world is Adam. Eve is not mentioned in this passage at all because Paul is focused on Adam as the one responsible. You see, God told Adam the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was even created. And then as the sin unfolds in Genesis chapter 3, as a serpent is talking to Eve, where is Adam? Have you ever thought about this? Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. Where is Adam? Well, the whole thing is going on. He's right there with her the whole time. He knew directly from God that he was not supposed to eat of that tree. And he did not object. And he did not protect But instead, he became a willful participant. Adam was given one command by God. One command. And he willfully chose to disobey that command. From Genesis 3, we see that God was holding Adam as first responsible. He confronts Adam first about the sin, holding him first responsible for the sin. And then when he gives the consequences of their sin, he gives Adam's consequences last to show that he is most responsible. Throughout the scriptures, it is Adam's sin as the head of the human race that is seen as the sin that plunged humankind into our fallen state of sin and darkness. Sin came into our world through one man, Adam. Well, next we see in verse 12 that death came into the world through sin. So Adam opened the door through which sin entered the world. So then sin opened the door through which death entered our world. The consequence of death from sin was foretold by God in Genesis 2.17 and in 3.19. So what kind of death? It's a basic meaning of death is separation. So there's spiritual death, where we are separated from God by our sins. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's because that we are spiritually dead that we need to be born again, that we need to be given a new life in Christ. And of course, there's physical death where we're separated from our bodies, where we're separated from this world, where our existence as mortal human being ends. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. What sin earns is death. 
The outcome of sin is death. Spiritual death, separation from God. Physical death, separation from this world. Death is not just a natural part of life. Death came through the door of sin. Death is caused by sin. Death is caused by the outcome of sin in this world. Death is a result of mankind's rebellion against God. That's why in the eternal state, when sin is wholly been vanquished, death will be vanquished. There will be no more death, for there will be no more sin. Sin and death are causally linked together. Well, next we see the progression that, that death then spread to all of humanity because all sinned. Death is our reality because sin is our reality. Death comes to us, to all of mankind, because we're sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in this passage here, Paul is is actually giving a different reason for the presence of death throughout humanity. It's not just because of our personal sin or, or just sin in this world, but spiritual death and physical death. He's pointing to our corporate status, our connection together as humans, as all of humanity through Adam's. We start to see the corporate connection that Paul is emphasizing at the end of verse 12 here. It's easy to miss, but it's very important to understand. Why did death spread to all humanity? Because all of humanity sinned. Notice it didn't say because all sin. That's true, as we already said, but that's not Paul's point in this passage. Sinned here is actually in the past tense. It's indicating that at one certain point of time in the past, all of humanity sinned at one point in the past. Well, what is that one point in the past when all of humanity sinned? It was in Adam's first sin. Adam's sin became mankind's sin. Adam's sin became mankind's sin. We see Paul stressing this point throughout this passage. Five times in five verses, in verses 15 through 19 of our passage, Paul states that it was the trespass, the sin, the disobedience of the one man, Adam, that brought death and judgment and condemnation to all men, to all of humanity. The reality is that all of humanity is under the divine judgment of God. Because of Adam's sin. Now, on the positive side of our passage, as the passage stresses over and over again, which is actually the main point of the passage, all of humanity is offered God's divine, abundantly overflowing grace because of one man, Jesus Christ and his obedience. But now in our Western kind of rugged individualism, you know, we don't like this idea that the, the consequences of sin in our lives has to do with some guy some years ago, you know. How am I under God's judgment for Adam's sin? Adam's sin is his sin. My sin is my sin. And we look at our lives so individualistically 
that we don't understand corporately how we're together. We have very little idea within our culture of the idea of headship. The Jewish culture is, in Paul's day, throughout the scripture, understood the idea of headship very well. And we actually see this in many, many passages throughout the scriptures. In our world today, in the Middle East, in Asia, and many African countries, they fully understand this idea of headship, this corporate connection of humanity. Might be hard for us to culturally understand, but this is what Paul is trying to teach us to get across. So how are we corporately connected together? How is Adam our head of all of humanity? Well, there are two main ways that theologians try to help us understand our connection to Adam, the headship of Adam over all of humanity, over us. One is that the Bible teaches that Adam is a representative head of all of humanity. His actions and choices represent us as our actions and choices. An easy way to understand what it means for Abraham, for Adam to be our representative is to think about how government works. So think about it. Our government leaders, those who get elected to represent their constituencies, they make choices. And those choices of our representatives become our reality. Whether you get to vote in your leaders as your representative, as is our privilege here in America, or, or you don't get to vote. Government leaders represent the people that they are making choices for. When our government voted to, to enter into World War II, guess what? The government just didn't go into World War II. Every citizen in America went into World War II. When a local school board decides to close a school building, guess what? It affects the whole community as they represent us. We actually use the term representative to describe the role of our government officials. So in the same way, Adam, as the head of all of humanity, as a representative of the constituency of humanity, when he sinned, when he made that choice, he brought all of humanity, our whole world, into spiritual depravity and bankruptcy, alienating us from God. We are implicated in the sin and rebellion of our father, Adam, and the effects of his decision has condemned us all. We are in Adam because he is our representative. But it's not just that Adam is our representative head. He's also our relational head. The second way the Bible teaches of Adam's headship over all of humanity is that Adam is the relational head of humanity. He is our father. He is the progenitor of all of humanity. We are in Adam as well because he's our relative. He's our father. His decisions have affected us like a father to their children in much profound ways. One wrote, mankind is a single entity, a divinely ordered solidarity of God. 
Adam represents the entire human race that is descended from him, no matter how many subgroups there are. Therefore, when Adam sinned, all mankind sinned. And because his first sin transformed his inner nature, now that depraved nature is also transmitted to his posterity. Because he became spiritually polluted, all his descendants would be polluted in the same way. You and me. In each human, in you and me, there's a direct connection to Adam through the sin nature that we have within us. Human depravity is a result of our connection to Adam's sin. We are sinners. Not because we sin. We sin because we are already sinners. Human depravity is in our hearts already. And it's out of that that causes our sinful actions. An infant doesn't have to be taught to disobey. An infant is born that way because of the depravity that is within them. No one whispers to a two-year-old, hey, you know a great way to get what you want? When you go to the store and you go in those aisles and all the candy is right at arm length so you can reach out and grab it just yourself, just I put it there just for you, this is what you do, okay? You totally freak out. You cry out loud as loud as you can get. You beg and plead. You arch your back in such an amazing way that it's impossible for the parent to take you out of the cart. You create as big a scene as possible, and guess what you can do? You can manipulate your parents into giving you what you want. No one has ever told a two-year-old that. We've all seen it. No one's ever told a two-year-old. But it often comes out. Why? Because our children are born with a sin nature, the human depravity. man. Have you ever seen those videos of the parents asking their kids, you know, did you eat my chocolate? And, oh, no, mommy, no. But their hands and mouth are all covered in chocolate. Or did you mark on the wall? No, daddy. But they're sitting in front of the marked wall with a marker in their hands and marker all over their hands, right? I actually got a 20-second cute little video here to watch. Hey, Jack, did, did you eat a cupcake? No. You didn't eat a cupcake? No, I wasn't at home. You sure you didn't eat a cupcake? No. Hmm. I thought you maybe had a cupcake. No. No? No. Definitely not? No. Not like in the last couple minutes? No. No cupcake for Jack? No. Oh, okay. No cupcake for Jack. Well, maybe there's some evidence there, Jack. Now it's cute, right? And it's funny. But it's also spiritual, what we're watching. Because what we're seeing is a legacy from Adam. That sin nature that's in us, that's coming out. Our children choose to sin because they're already sinners. And oh, folks, that opens up such great, awesome possibilities and responsibility to share with our children the glorious truth. Someone has come to save us from our sins. Now, young children don't know how to hide their selfishness. They haven't yet become trained, you know, sophisticated veteran sinners like, like you and me, right? We have years of experience of hiding our sins. 
Someday our children will learn, just like us, how to hide their sins. See, we're not sinners because we sin either. We sin because we're already sinners. And guess what? Jesus came to save sinners, to save us. See, folks, that opens for us to hear the truth. When we realize the sin that is within us, it opens with us to realize the truth, the glorious truth. Someone has come to save us from our sins. His name is Jesus. When Adam sinned, as our representative, as our father, all of his descendants, us, the entire human race, shared in that sin and were alienated from God and death thus resulted. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says the same truth. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. It is in that same sense that we are in Adam as we are in Christ. We were not there physically at the crucifixion when Jesus died, but as believers, we willingly accept the fact, the truth, that by faith, we died with him. We were not literally in the grave with Jesus. We did not literally resurrect with him out of the grave. But by faith, we are counted to have been buried with him, to have been raised with him. See, if the principle were not true that all sinned in Adam, it would be impossible to make that point that we can all be made righteous in Christ. If the principle is not true that we all sinned in Adam, it's impossible to make the point that we can all be made righteous in Christ. We will see Paul making this point over and over again in verses 15 through 19. So perhaps one might say, well, I wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. I had nothing to do with it. I'm innocent of Jesus' death. Oh, the reality was we were there, right? The sins which led to his death are our sins too. Remember that spiritual song? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know what the answer is to that? Yes. Yes, we were there. As guilty participants in our sin, and we were there by faith as forgiven recipients of his grace and love and forgiveness. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verses 13 and 14 are kind of an aside. Paul, in mid-thought, starts to answer an objection, a question. How come people died when they didn't have God's law to break? If sin brings death, and sin is breaking God's law, and they didn't have God's law, then why did they die? Now, Paul could have answered that as he, as he did earlier in Romans 2.15 saying that even people who don't have God's direct commandments violate God's commandments because they have God's commandments written on their hearts. But instead, in this passage, he, he answers with a, w- this objection by appealing to the truth of this passage. He's trying to teach us that all humanity is in Adam. 
And because of the condemnation that followed from Adam's sin, all humanity is guilty, and thus death reigns over everyone. For in Adam we're all guilty. Death is universal, even if there is no law, because sin is universal through our connection to Adam and through our own sinful actions in nature. The end of verse 14 then sets up the rest of the verses. The contrast and comparisons of Adam and Christ. It says Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a prefigure. Adam was a a pattern, a prototype, a, a foreshadowing, a symbol, a picture, a model. There is truth that we can learn as we compare the one man Adam to the one man Jesus Christ. So now Paul delineates five different areas of contrast between the condemning act of Adam and the redeeming act of Christ. It's so important to stress that as Paul shows us this grim reality of the choice of Adam and its results in our lives, he's actually emphasizing the much greater reality of the much greater grace and power of God shown in the choices and obedience of Christ and its results. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. First, we see the contrast of impact of Adam's offense and Christ's gift. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. Because of Adam's trespass, many died. But now much more, so much more, because of the free gift of the grace of God abounded through the one man, Jesus Christ, to the many. Adam's sin brought death. Christ's grace brought a free gift. What's that free gift? Romans 6.23 tells us in detail, the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Adam's sin is one-dimensional. Adam's sin brings us death. But Christ's free gift is so much more abounding in giving life and abundant life and eternal life and grace and salvation and hope and peace and security and love and mercy and on and on and on. The abundance of the free gift Well, next we see the contrast of result. Adam's sin brought condemnation. Christ's free gift brings justification. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Oh, the consequences of Adam's sin, right? It brings condemnation to all of us, to all of humanity. Through him as our representative head, through him as our relational head, through him giving us the sin nature. And what's the result of this sin? Condemnation. But oh, how much more consequential is the free gift? The free gift can take all those sins and by grace declare them forgiven. Declare a sinner innocent on account of Jesus taking the consequences of our sin and giving us instead the consequences of his grace 
Oh, the result of grace, justification to be declared righteous before God. Well, next we see the contrast of power. Adam's sin brought in the reign of death. Christ's free gift brought in the reign of righteousness and life. And verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death is powerful. Death is final. Death is that great enemy of mankind. Death reigns in power because of sin. But oh, folks, the great power of death is nothing, is nothing at all for our Christ to conquer. Grace is more powerful. The free gift of God has the last word. The greater love of Jesus is for mankind. Life reigns supreme because of Christ's righteousness. Grace and Christ and the free gift and life and eternal life and righteousness is so much more powerful than sin and death. It's like me sumo wrestling. Gotta take a moment, put the picture in your head. Pastor Brian, sumo wrestling. Have you ever seen a sumo wrestler? There I go into the ring, right? Within seconds, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be completely crushed within moments. There's no way for sin and death to reign. Not with Christ. It is crushed in a moment. God's grace is so much more powerful than sin and death. There's really no comparison. Well, next we see the contrast of action. Through Adam's act of disobedience, the many were made sinners. But through, through Christ's action of obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, when God commanded Adam to not eat the forbidden fruit, Adam disobeyed. And the sin brought in death. When God sent his only begotten son into the world out of his love for us to suffer and to die in our place, his son obeyed and brought life. Adam's disobedience was imputed to his descendants, making us all legally guilty before God. And Christ's obedience is imputed to all who believe in him, making them legally righteous, innocent before God. Adam's one trespass, his disobedience in the moment led to condemnation. But Christ's one act of righteousness, his obedience took much more than a moment. Adam's disobedience took a moment. Christ's obedience took 33 years. See, Jesus didn't just obey God by humbling himself to die on a cross. He obeyed God every second of every day without fail for some 33 years. 33 years of perfect, sinless obedience. Then, 
his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross, then his resurrection and power three days later. We are saved not just because Jesus died on the cross, but because a perfect, sinless, spotless, impeccably righteous Jesus died on the cross in our place as our sacrifice to take our sin and to give us his righteous standing before God. Oh, the great height of the grace and love of Jesus. Well, lastly, we see the contrast of increase. Sin increased. Grace abounded all the more. Verses 20 and 21. Now the law came to increase a trespass. Trespasses, sin, increasing. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where there was no law, death still reigned through sin as sin still reigned in man's nature. Now then, when there is the specific law of God, guess what happens? Sin increases. Paul is going to dive into this point later in chapter 7. But his point here is simple to understand. Sin is doing its best to increase, taking every opportunity it can to spread and to multiply. It's like putting a new motor on a go-kart and then racing against NASCAR. Sure, the go-kart of sin has increased in its power with its new motor, but it's still no match for the NASCAR of grace. Are you starting to get the picture that Paul is painting here of the overwhelming power of grace, of the overwhelming power of the free gift, of the overwhelming power of eternal life, of the overwhelming power of our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul is presented, you know, kind of like a scale with Adam and sin and death weighing down the one side of the scale. And then Jesus and grace and eternal life coming to the other side. Now, folks, they are opposite, but they are not equal, not even close. As the weight of God's grace, of God's righteousness, of the free gift of eternal life is placed on the scale, it doesn't just tip the scale in its direction. No, it lands on the scale with such force that sin and death go flying off the scale. Launched forever to be lost, overcome, overwhelmed by grace. It's not an evenly matched battle. It's not a duel between two heavyweight champions. The comparison is that there is no comparison. The contrast is so vast that it's unattainable. There is much more grace in Jesus than there is sin in this world. There's much more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us, in you, in me. Much more. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. If we could truly catch a glimpse of this truth, I mean, if we could just put our arms around it for a moment, what an energy! What a resolve, what a commitment would renew within our hearts to overflow in obedience and worship to Christ. Because grace is one. 
For the prodigal son, grace wins. For the woman at the well, grace wins. For the blind man and the beggar, grace wins. For always and forever, grace wins. For the lost out on the street, grace wins. For the worst part in you and in me, grace wins. For the thief on the cross, grace wins. For a world that is lost, grace wins Every time. Every time. Let's pray. Father, now we come to you in these moments in the power and the beauty of your word to just rejoice in what Paul is teaching us today, what your word is teaching us, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us today. The overwhelming power and beauty of the grace of God. Of the free gift of Jesus Christ that is offered to each one of us. That far outspans sin and death. bringing to us life and eternal life and abundant life and real life and hope and salvation and peace and joy. If you're here this morning, as we're getting ready to take communion, perhaps you've never taken that step. You've never gone forward into that grace. You've never received the free gift. This morning can be your morning. This time can be your time right now. Just in your own words, ABCs, admit. Admit your sin. Admit you fall short. Admit that sin nature within you and your drive to sin. Admit that the consequences of your sin is death. And then B, believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in his name. Believe he is who he is. Believe he lived that sinless life. Believe he died on the cross for your sin. Believe he rose again on the third day. Believe. And then see, confess. Confess him as your Lord. Confess him as your Savior. Put the trust of your life into him. To follow him from this day forward. Lord, for us as as believers here gather today, as we get ready to get into this communion time now, open our minds and just catch a glimpse of the truth that we talked about today. Just to, just enough to, to light our fire of the wonder of the grace and love of Jesus Christ. May it be. In Jesus' name, amen.